Well, here's the question. Have you ever, have you ever been absolutely just blown away at the thought of how much God loves you? You ever been blown away by it? You're just like at a moment in time where you're just like, wow, I cannot believe how much God loves me. A few minutes ago, we sang one of my favorite hymns, it's one of my all-time favorites, The Love of God. Ever since the first time I heard that song, my heart has resonated with the lyrics, particularly the third verse, the way that that song just so accurately captures the struggle to describe the indescribable and the immeasurable love of God. And I think we just need to accept the fact that we really, until we are in heaven with him face to face, our best attempts are going to fall short to grasp hold of it. So it's okay. You're struggling to grasp God's love. You're going to. It's, 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 it's immeasurable. Listen to the, to the words, the poetic imagery of that third verse. I want to read it to you again. The writer says, could we with ink the ocean fill? So you get the picture, right? The ocean is no longer water, it's ink. And were the skies of parchment made? Nice paper, okay? Were every stock on earth a quill, a pencil, a pen, and every man a scribe by trade? Professional writers, this is what we do. We write, 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 write. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of ink, right? Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Isn't that beautiful, poetic imagery? What a picture. What a way to describe the immeasurable love of God. God's love for you and for me is so far beyond what we can possibly describe or even imagine, even even if we struggle to believe it or to accept it. And I know that some of you may struggle with the idea that God loves you for a variety of reasons, right? Some of you don't feel like God loves you. You just don't feel like he does. And others don't feel like God should love you. You're weighed down with guilt and you don't understand how God could possibly love you. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter what you feel or what you think. It's a fact that God loves you. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. In fact, the events that we are celebrating at Easter, the events that, that literally millions of Christians all over the globe are gathering to celebrate today, the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest proof of how much God loves you you. Jesus once said that greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. The Bible also says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our lives to pay the price for our sins. There is no greater demonstration of the incomprehensible love of God than the fact that his one and only son died on a cross for you and for me. And in the Bible, there is, there is one verse that I believe captures the love of God and his, let's call it his rescue mission. Did you ever think about the fact that we're all rescues? You know, everybody's, today, everybody's proud if they, if they get a dog and it's a rescue, 
Like, like, it's a rescue. You know, like, yeah, I wouldn't go buy one from a breeder. I, I got a rescue. We're all rescues, okay? That's what God did. He rescued us. I think he's pretty proud of it, actually. And the verse that, that, that I'm talking about here, though, the, the verse that captures God's rescue mission probably better than any other verse in the Bible, is, had been, it's been called the gospel in miniature. Now, the word gospel just means good news, okay? So this verse is called the good news in miniature, or the good news in a nutshell. This verse, I believe, hands down, is the most popular verse in the entire Bible. It is the, bio, it's the verse that is probably most quoted ever, and many of you probably already have it memorized. If you don't already have it memorized, the odds are pretty good that you've at least seen it written on like a poster board, uh, you know, at a football game or a baseball game, or you've seen it written on, you know, some famous athlete's, you know, shoes or under their eyes. The verse, of course, is John... John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me say that again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you spent the rest of your life just meditating on the truth that's contained in that verse, that would be enough. That would be enough. It is an incredible verse, an incredible demonstration of God's great love. God the Father gave His only Son. And what an incredible promise to those who believe. They will not perish, but will have eternal life. John 3.16 is an amazing verse. And so this morning, I want to highlight the incredible good news that is contained in John 3.16. And the way that we're going to do this is actually not by focusing too much on John 3.16. We are going to get to John 3.16, but really what I want to do this morning is focus on a couple of verses that come just before John 3.16. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a brief overview of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Just a, just a quick overview. Then we're going to take a, a closer look at verses 14 and 15, and then we're going to just get hit John 3, 16 really quickly at the end. So let's just start with just a, a brief overview of the first 13 verses in John chapter 3. And what we have here in, in these first 13 verses is a conversation. It's a conversation that's going back and forth between Jesus and a religious leader named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus has come to Jesus privately at night, and he's talking to Jesus and, and asking him some questions. Nicodemus is curious about Jesus. I mean, he knows that Jesus is, is special. He's not just an ordinary guy. He's not just an ordinary teacher. He's not ordinary in any way. So Nicodemus is curious. He wants to get to know this Jesus better. He wants to ask him some questions. You know, it strikes me that, that a lot of people come to church for similar reasons, right? They're trying to explore. They're trying to figure out who is this Jesus that all these Christians are so crazy about, right? So Nicodemus comes to him, and he's, he's asking Jesus some questions, but 
He's not a follower yet. He's not a follower of Jesus. Not yet. So in these first 13 verses, you've got this back and forth. They're going back. They're talking. It's a dialogue where Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand how a person becomes part of God's kingdom. How does a person become part of God's forever family? Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand how a person receives eternal life. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, he starts off, he says, you know, in order to be part of God's kingdom, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Now, if you spent any time around Christians, you've probably heard that terminology before, right? Sometimes Christians refer to themselves as born-again Christians. And I imagine that Nicodemus looked at Jesus just like a lot of people who aren't Christians look at Christians when you say, I'm a born-again Christian, right? Like, I, don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. That, well, that doesn't even make sense. And so apparently Nicodemus kind of felt this way. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you want to be part of God's kingdom? You have to be born again. And Nicodemus looks at him and says, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about. How is that even possible? How can a person, how can a person, you know, be born again, especially when they're old? He gets all literal on Jesus. And, and then he, if he had stopped there, that would have been good enough, right? But he didn't. He then says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, it's not like an old man can just go back into his mother's womb. It's like, thank you, Nicodemus, for that. <laughs> I wish, I really do wish that, that John had recorded how Jesus reacted to that statement, you know? Did he chuckle? Like, oh, Nicodemus, you are such a goober, you know? <laughs> Did he roll his eyes? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how he reacted, but Jesus did then go on to explain what he meant. Jesus says, Nicodemus, I'm not talking about being physically born again. That only happens one time. I'm talking about being born spiritually. Jesus says, the only way to be part of God's kingdom is for your spirit to be brought to life. You've already been born physically, Nicodemus, but you need to be born spiritually. When Nicodemus hears this, he asks Jesus the question. He says, well, how? How is someone born again? How is someone brought to life, spiritually speaking? Now, I got to tell you that I am absolutely thrilled that Nicodemus asked those questions because it's from these questions that we get some of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture. So in John chapter 3, that's the first 13 verses. Now in verse 14, Jesus is going to, he's going to answer Nicodemus' question. And Jesus, of course, you know how he is, right? He answers questions with questions or he answers questions with a story. And so Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I don't get it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's got to be what Nicodemus is thinking. Jesus begins to answer Nicodemus's question by reminding him of a story from the Old Testament. 
And by the way, all week long, I've been, you know, because I was praying about, God, what would you have me to share on, on Easter? And all week long, I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? Because this is, a, this is a, a, a little bit of a strange story to focus on on Easter. As, as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The story of the bronze serpent on a pole. That's, that's the story. Now, there are a lot of really good stories from the Old Testament, a lot, of, a lot of stories that Jesus could have chose. What are some of your favorite, like, Old Testament stories? Anybody? Just throw one out there. Moses. I mean, the, the whole Moses story, the Exodus, and oh, yeah, incredible, right? The Ten Commandments. And, okay, what else? All right, Abraham and Isaac. Yeah, that's a good one. Joseph. Yeah, I love the story of Joseph. We just went through that one recently. Uh, what was the other one? Jonah. Jonah, good one. D- David and Goliath. What's that? David and Absalom. Oh, David and Absalom. Yeah, that's not usually on the top ten, but it's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one, Mac. That's a good one. I like that one. I was going to say David and Goliath. You know, everybody knows David and Goliath. That's a great story. There's so many good stories, but this one, even though, and this is funny, Christians, even though Jesus actually brings this story up, this actually happens to be a lesser known story in the Old Testament. The story of the bronze serpent is, it's, it's really actually, it's a relatively short story, and it's tucked away in everybody's favorite Old Testament book, the book of Numbers. <laughs> That's probably why it's a less well-known story. Uh, it's in the book of Numbers. But while this story might be less familiar to, to you and to me, it's a story that Nicodemus, as a religious leader, he was, he was part of a group called the Pharisees, and they knew the Old Testament, especially the first five books of the Bible. Most of them had the first five books of the Bible memorized. And I'm proud of the fact that I know John 3.16, you know? <laughs> Nicodemus would have been very familiar with this story. So let me just give you a little bit of background uh, about this story of the bronze serpent, and then we'll read it together. So this story takes place, someone mentioned Moses and the Exodus. This story takes place when the people have, have, have come out of Egypt. God has rescued them from Egypt, and they are wandering in the wilderness. It's a, it's a desert. And they're wandering there for a period of 40 years. You see, what happened was after God rescued his people out of Egypt, as they were making their way to the, to the land of Israel, the land that God had promised them, on the way, keep in mind, God just rescued them out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. On the way, the people began to grumble, complain, they began to rebel against God, and they stopped trusting in God to take care of them. And we're thinking like, oh, those foolish Israelites. We would never do that, right? I would never grumble and complain against God. I would never fail to trust God with every detail of of my life. Well, God made the decision that he was not going to bring this initial group of of Jews into the promised land. Instead, he told them that they were going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until that first generation of people died off. 
He's like, yeah, we're just going to wander around and around and around in the wilderness until this whole generation is gone. And then I will bring the next generation into the promised land. Now, there's a problem. If you're wandering around, it's tough. Like you, you, if, you, if you're planted somewhere, you can, you can throw down fields and crops and you can sustain yourself, right? But if you're wandering around the desert, it's tough to provide for hundreds of thousands, even possibly millions of people wandering around in the wilderness. And so God provided for them. He provided something called manna. It was food from heaven. It was like a, it was a bread-like substance, which I'm sure on the first day tastes great. They loved it. They're like, wow, didn't even have to work for this. This is awesome. You go outside, you pick up the manna off the ground, you eat it, you're full. Next day, the manna shows up again. This is awesome, right? Don't even have to work for it. But after, I mean, how long? What do you think? A week? <laughs> Two weeks? 40 years, okay? These guys have been wandering in the wilderness and they've been eating manna. And this story of the bronze serpent takes place as they are nearing the end of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness eating manna. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, let's read. Number 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Here they go again, right? But they've actually been doing this for 40 years. It's been a cycle. They just keep complaining and they're like, oh God, we're sorry. And he forgives them and they've been doing this. But here they go again, just like their ancestors. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. Now, keep in mind that God has been providing for them for 40 years, right? He rescued them from Egypt and he's providing for them. They said, there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. <laughs> There's no food. <laughs> we hate this food. <laughs> so there is food, right? They have food, but they don't like what God is providing for them. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And by the way, this is a great story to read to your kids um, about grumbling and complaining. So God takes grumbling and complaining very seriously, clearly here. But anyway, so they said, Moses, would you pray for us? So Moses prayed for the people, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Happy Easter. <laughs> so <laughs> do you get the picture of what's going on here? Do you, do you get the picture of what's happening with the, with the Israelites in the wilderness? Because of their sin, 
God's judgment has come upon, uh, come upon the people, and, and these serpents are in the camp. They're biting people, and people are dying from these snake bites. So they go to Moses, and, and they repent. They say, we, we realize we were wrong. We shouldn't have grumbled against God. We should trust God. We should follow him. Please, Moses, would you pray to the Lord? Pray, ask God to save us. And Moses did. He prayed and he, God told him to, to make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole and bring it out where the people could see it. Now, again, this is not like a hundred people, okay? Like I could put a serpent on a pole and all of you can see it, right? This is hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people out here in the wilderness. So Moses puts this bronze serpent on a pole and he brings it out into the camp. And I imagine, I picture him moving from tribe to tribe as they were gathered in different groups and tribes and families, okay? And he's going through the camp, making them know, letting them know, God has provided a way for you to not die. This is what you got to do. You just got to look at this serpent on the pole. This, it's, a, it's a wild, wild story, right? It's crazy. It's a crazy story. And, and you're thinking like, this is exactly, if you're visiting today, you're like, exactly, right? This is, this is wild. All right, now let's turn back to John chapter 3, because Jesus is the one. By the way, I was like, God, you, I feel weird preaching about the, the serpent on the pole on Easter, and, and, and what the Lord spoke to me is like, well, my son Jesus brought up this story in front of the most famous verse in all of history, John three sixteen, right? So I guess I don't need to be too embarrassed to tell this story, do I? Jesus looks at Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14. And G Nicodemus wants to know, how can a person be born again? How can a person be brought to life spiritually? And Jesus answers Nicodemus. He says, hey, remember the story about the fiery serpents? Remember that? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then in verse 15, he says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus tells Nicodemus that in the same way that God saved the people when they looked to the serpent on the pole, people will be saved by looking to the Son of Man when he is lifted up. Now, you need to know that the Son of Man is a title for the Messiah, the Savior who was to come. So Jesus is talking to this religious leader, this, this spiritual leader of, of the Jewish people, and he's telling them, him that the Messiah that you've been waiting for, the, the Savior that's to come, is going to be lifted up in some way that is similar to this bronze serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. And Jesus says, the answer to your question, Nicodemus, how is a person born again? How is a person brought to life spiritually? Jesus says the answer is this, by believing in the Son of Man, by looking to Him who is lifted up. And Jesus says that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. You know, I often wonder when I think about that story in the wilderness is, were there people who saw Moses with the serpent on the pole who said, I'm not going to look at that thing, you know? It's too simple. 
It's too easy. That makes no sense. Yeah, a lot of things that God does and has people do don't always make sense, but it doesn't make them any less true, does it? See, it turns out that the story of of this bronze serpent was more than just some isolated experience that the Jewish people went through while they were wandering in the wilderness. This story of the bronze serpent on the pole was a picture of the salvation that, was, that God is going to provide for everybody who looks to his son Jesus believing in him. In the same way, in the same way that the people in the wilderness sinned against God, they sinned against God, right? They, multiple times. Every single one of us has sinned against God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the same way that God's judgment was on them for their sins, they were infected by these snake bites. God's judgment is on us for our sins as well. Pastor Henry said it at the Friday night service here, our Good Friday service, that we've all been bitten, right? Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent came, tempted him. They took the bait, and they were bitten, in the same way that there was nothing that, that the Israelites could do to heal themselves in the wilderness, there is nothing that we can do to heal ourselves. The Bible says that salvation is a gift of God. It's a gift of God, not a result of our good works. We could never be good enough, which is why God sent his son, because he was. In the same way that God provided them the, the only way to be saved. What was the only way to be saved in the wilderness? By looking to the serpent on the pole. That was the only way. If they didn't do it, they were going to die. In the same way, God has provided us with a one and only way to be saved for all eternity, by looking and believing in the Savior on a cross. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And again, it's not a truth that you have to like. It's just a truth that is truth. And he's kind enough to tell us, hey, you want to be forgiven of your sins? You want to have life? It's through me. Jesus says, I am the only way to be saved. And in the same way that that those who looked to the serpent on the pole were given life, everyone who looks to Jesus, the one who was lifted up on a cross, will be given eternal life. The Bible says to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's amazing. You've been brought to spiritual life. The story of the bronze serpent on a pole was a picture of the salvation that God would provide for us through the death of his son Jesus on a cross for our sins. Ever since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, God has been working on his rescue plan to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And the Bible tells us that the cross is actually the reason why Jesus came. Ever think about that? 
that the perfect little baby in a manger that we love to sing about at Christmas, we love that story, right? It's beautiful. But that perfect little baby in a manger came to die on a cross for our sins. Jesus came to be lifted up. That's why he came. Why? Why would God send his son to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be beaten, to be falsely accused, and to die? To be treated so poorly by the very people that he created. It's pretty humiliating, don't you think? A pretty humbling experience to be the son of God and to have human beings treating you the way that he was treated. Why would God send his son to endure the most excruciating suffering at the hands of sinful men? Why would God send his son to be lifted up on a cross to die for our sins? Why? 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 John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, Jesus said in verse 15, will have eternal life. Friends, let there be no doubt. God loves you. It's the way I started. I, 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 I don't know how to convince you. There's no better proof of the fact that God loves you than the cross. You know, let that truth sink into your hearts. He loves you so much that he sent his only son. He sent Jesus to live a perfect life, the life that we were incapable of living. He sent Jesus to be lifted on a cross to pay the price for our sins. He sent Jesus to free us from the judgment that we deserve. He sent Jesus to defeat death, right, by rising victoriously from the grave. How about the fact that because Jesus lives, we know that we too will live? How much hope does that give you when you think about those who have gone before you? That there is hope beyond the grave. He sent Jesus to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And whoever looks to him, believing that he is our savior, believing that he is the only payment that God has provided for sins, Anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Sins forgiven, born again. <laughs> you get to call yourself a born again Christian. You don't have to, but if you are, you are. You have eternal life. And this is good news, right? This is good news. No wonder why John 3.16 is called the gospel in miniature. Whoever believes in him, whoever looks to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, John 3.16 says, will not perish. Those who believe in Jesus will not. To perish means to be separated from God. To be separated from God from, for all eternity. You hear the word hell. That's what hell is. To be separated from God, from a holy and loving God for all eternity. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of John 3.16 is that we don't have to be separated from God. The Son of Man was lifted up so that we, by believing in Him, might have eternal life. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Today, Christians all over the world, all over the world, millions celebrating the eternal life that we now have in Jesus. A life that began the moment we turned to him and believed. And as I said before, it's a life that isn't just about a, a punching our ticket to heaven. Like, okay, I got that. Now, now if I die, I can go to heaven. No, no, no. You don't understand. God wants so much more for you than that. And, and I am convinced that, that, that literally millions of Christians are not experiencing the life that Jesus wants for them right here and now. He died to give you life, not just eternal life isn't just a, a quantity of life. It's a quality of life that Jesus came to give us. Today, we celebrate his victory over sin and over death. He paid the price for our sins on the cross. He defeated death when he rose from the grave. And we celebrate that he not only, not only that, that he died on the cross, but on the third day, the fact that he came back to life. Before we close our time together, I want to call your attention to two specific people, two people who were there on the day when Jesus was crucified. I mean, there was a lot of people there, right? It was crowds. And some of the people in the crowd were weeping, right? I mean, we think of his mom, we think of some of his disciples who were watching from a distance. John, the beloved, was up close, the one who wrote this book, the book of John. A lot of people there. But there were also people there who were cheering, right? So there's, there's a whole crowd there. But there, there are two people that were there that I really want to talk about this morning. The first, Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Because the, the text that we're looking at is John chapter 3, right? But when you flip over to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, there's some time that's some past year, a couple of years probably, we're told that after Jesus died, Nicodemus was there. He was one of the men who came and prepared Jesus' body for burial. Now, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that, that Nicodemus, on the day when Jesus was telling him about the serpent on the pole, and he said, do you want to have eternal life, Nicodemus? You want to be born again? You want to have your spiritual eyes open? Let me tell you about the fiery serpents and the serpent on the pole. You know, when he told, when Jesus told him that, I don't think he understood it all completely. You know, because it's easy for us. We look back. We know what comes next. We know that Jesus was literally lifted up on a cross, right? But Nicodemus doesn't know that that's what's coming, right? But I got to tell you, when he was there at the, at the cross on the day when Jesus died, and as people were cheering for Jesus' death, and others were weeping as Jesus died. I imagine that Nicodemus would have heard the voice of Jesus echoing in his mind. The words that he had shared with him years before on that private night when he came to talk to Jesus privately. And Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's looking up at Jesus, hanging on a cross, and then the very next words, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's a purpose for this right now. This isn't senseless. 
He knew this was going to happen. He's fulfilling the purpose for which he came. And Nicodemus saw the words of Jesus being fulfilled right before his eyes. In fact, I believe that the reason why we even have this story is because Nicodemus then told probably John that one time I went and met with Jesus at night. It was a private meeting, right? And Nicodemus shared with the disciples what Jesus had shared with him. That's why we have the story here. And even while Jesus was still hanging on the cross, there's another person I want to talk about. As Jesus is, is hanging on the cross, like the, like the serpent on the pole all those years before out in the wilderness, people were already beginning to look to him believing in him. The Bible tells us that one of the criminals who was being crucified right next to him, right? Remember this story? One of the people who's being crucified right next to him, a criminal, turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he believed. He believed that Jesus was going to his kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. As Jesus was lifted up on the cross, the man being crucified next to him believed in Jesus. You know, it wasn't some fancy prayer, was it? Repeat after me with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, right? with lots of great Christian words like born again and sanctification and justification, all these big Christian words. He just said, Jesus, remember me. I believe. I believe in you. Alistair Begg tells a great story about this. He can't wait to meet <laughs> the thief on the cross. Because when he meets the thief on the cross, he's like, you know, like, how did you get in? You know, and, and he's going to tell the story about when he went to, to heaven. They said, why should we let you in? He said, I don't know. The guy in the middle cross told me to. <laughs> so it's a, great, it's a great story. He didn't have his doctrine all figured out yet, did he? It's like, well, hey, explain the doctrine of the justification by faith alone through grace alone. He's like, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. I just know that I believe in him. And it's not to say it's not important to learn those things. He didn't have a lot of time, you know? He didn't have time to get baptized. He didn't have time to take communion. He didn't have time to go to seminary, right? He didn't have time to study the scriptures. He just believed. He believed, and he was saved. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise to that man. Why? Because he believed. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, even a dying criminal on a cross. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, and maybe it's easy for you to imagine that God so loved the world or that God so loves the person next to you. But I want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. God loved you so much that he gave his only son, that if you believe in him, you will not perish. You will have eternal life. He loves you. He died for you. 
He rose from the grave and defeated death to give you eternal life. The question you have to answer is, do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? Now, I know that a lot of you would say, yes, 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 I believe in him. That's why you're so enthusiastic on, on Easter. But there may be some of you who are here that said, I never have. I've never done what the thief on the cross did to look to Jesus and say, I believe. And so this morning, if that's you, I just want to give you an opportunity to do so. I'm not going to make you, you know, get up and come down here and stand down front. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to bow your head right now and, 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 and repeat after me. Here's what I'm going to tell you. What you need to do is you need to talk to God. It's prayer. That's what prayer is. You need to talk to God in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. You can say it in your heart. You can say it right now. Jesus, I believe. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you did die on a cross for me. I believe you rose again from the grave. I'm a sinner. I need you. You're the only way that's been provided for me to have eternal life. I believe that. I want that. You have to say it exactly the way I just said it. No, you don't. You just have to believe it. Do you get it? You just have to believe. You need to call out to Jesus in belief and you will be saved. Now, here's what I will say. I'm not gonna make you come down, stand in front here right now and do this, but if that is a decision that you are making, I do encourage you to come and talk to me afterwards. Talk to somebody else here that, that you know is a believer, somebody who believes in Jesus. Tell them the decision you've made because here's why. It is not complicated to become a Christian, but living the Christian life is not easy. It's not, right? It's not, and we need each other. And we wanna help you grow in your understanding of who God is. We wanna help you understand you know, how to live your life in fellowship with God. All right, we'll give you a Bible. We'll, we'll, we'll get you on the way a bit. Okay, so if you've made that decision, we want to invite you to come and talk to us and let us know so we can, we can walk with you on this journey. At this time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to sing just two songs to close. But while they're coming up, I want to read you a, a story that I came across, which I thought was pretty, pretty good. It's a story about um, kind of a famous preacher from Chicago. His name was D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody was in England on one of his crusades. And he met a, a young man by the name of Henry Morehouse. And Henry Morehouse, was, he, he liked D.L. Moody a lot. And he, so he comes up to D.L. Moody, he's talking to me, and he said, Mr. Moody, uh, if, if, if I were to come to Chicago to visit, would you let me preach at your church? And the evangelist, Mr. Moody, agreed to the suggestion lightly enough, never thinking that he would have to make good on his promise. He's like, he's in England. It's not like the guy's going to come to Chicago, right? But in due time, Mr. Morehouse arrived on Moody's doorstep to redeem the pledge. And a reluctant Moody surrendered his pulpit, assuring his colleagues that the young man could not do much harm in one night. <laughs> and in and that he himself would follow him into the pulpit and rescue the situation. Well, that night, Henry Morehouse took 
John 3.16 as his text. And he preached on the love of God with such passion and power that an odd Moody invited him to speak the next night. And this continued for a week. Each night, the Englishman speaking from the same text, John 3.16. And Moody was overwhelmed. In fact, Henry Morehouse became known as the man who moved the man who moved millions. And on the last night of his series, Henry Morehouse said to the people, I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you all week long. And he said, suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder. Suppose I could ascend that shining stairway until my feet stood on the sapphire pavements of the city of God. Suppose I could find Gabriel, the herald angel who stands in the presence of God. And suppose I could say, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? I know what he would say. He would say, Henry Morehouse, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I pray that every single one of you knows that reality. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and sing.